there's nothing wrong with wanting to be known. There's nothing wrong with wanting to matter. There's nothing wrong with having conditions for what you need in your relationships in order to exist, in order to thrive. And that's how I think of needs. Needs are those conditions. It is the what. It is what you require in order to exist and thrive in your relationships. And what I find is that a huge hindrance for us in asking for what we need is even knowing what we're allowed to need to begin with. Have you ever wondered if you're too much or too needy? Have you gone to great lengths to make sure your needs remain hidden? Well, no surprise, y'all. We have a complicated relationship with needs, like a really complicated relationship with needs. We carry a lot of baggage around our needs, around others' needs, and the many mixed messages about having needs, but doing everything possible to not be seen as being needy. We're all just a few clicks away from finding a listicle post alerting us to the toxic red flags of neediness, and another click away from reading about how to speak your needs and have them met. <laughs> you can't win, right? We hold a lot of polarities around needs, and at a great cost to how we care for ourselves and others in the spaces we work and lead. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. When we suppress our needs, we end up feeling the parts of us that hold scarcity, shame, and worry. And this only fosters a deepening of needs, often trying to achieve them in ways that only perpetuate the pursued distance dance of needing. Now, needs are foundational to our existence, and our society has weaponized needs, so if you need, you become needy. And the idea of being seen as needy evokes fear and shame. Now, expressing needs for some <laughs> evokes a kind of reaction I see like when people watch a horror movie, like, oh, the horror, <laughs> you have needs or you showed your needs. Ah, <laughs> or like that look that people get when they smell something bad or you cringe or feel repulsed, like you, you have needs, right? Or maybe something slightly different comes up for you, like more like pity, which of course is lands so differently than like heartfelt compassion and empathy in the face of understandable human needs. Like, oh, poor you that you need something <laughs> like, like, yeah, great. Now, sure, how we express our needs warrants attention. But y'all, it's less about pathologizing neediness and more about things like boundaries and expectations and understanding our relational wounding. But I see how we further complicate our relationship with needs by creating this binary around them, like it's good to have needs and bad to be needy, or it's good to help people, but bad to be helped, <laughs> and therefore putting moral meaning on a subjective perspective on needs. This is like incredibly exhausting, right? And when we put a moral meaning on a need, and I want to note, humans by nature have needs, then we invite shame in to have a say on our needs, on our very existence, right? 
So instead of seeing needs as natural and normal, we then try to exile them, only leading to a culture that supports the myth of rugged individualism. And when we shame needs, we become critical of ourselves for even having them. Our legitimate needs become wrapped in a shame that leaves us with the burden belief that these needs arise because what? Something's wrong with us, right? How messed up is that? And I also see in some circles I'm in that people are exalted for caring for the needs of others. Like when you overfunction and go above and beyond what your capacity to care for people, what you have, you're a hero, right? You're a true soldier. You're a saint. <laughs> we celebrate taking care of others in need, but we still judge the heck out of having our own needs. It's a mess. And I could not think of a better person to join me on a deep dive exploring our complicated relationship with our needs than today's guest. She wrote a book aptly called Needy, and we dig deep on how we come to see our needs as problems, as objects of shame, as feelings to heal or banish instead of natural and normal. Mara Glatzkill is a master's in social work, is an author, intuitive coach, a podcast host who helps humans stop abandoning themselves and start reclaiming their humanity through embracing their needs and honoring their natural energy rhythms. Her superpower is saying what you need to hear and when you need to hear it. And she's here to help you believe in yourself as much as she believes in you. That's pretty awesome, huh? So for our conversation today, listen for Mara's point about how when we deny our needs, how that equates to denying our humanity and pay attention to how Mara connects our needs with our intrinsic desire to be known. And notice when Mara makes a special example around the destabilizing impact of centering our needs and priorities. All right, y'all. Now, please welcome Mara Glatzel to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Mara, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm stoked to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, you wrote a book about needs and being needy. And I have to tell you, before I even jump into the questions, I started talking about this book to my colleagues, to my clients, to my friends. Can you guess their reaction when I brought up the title of this book? What has become so amazing since the book came out? This was not, I mean, obviously, I know it's kind of a polarizing word. It's striking in a certain way. But what I have noticed since the book coming out is that it's this great litmus test for whether or not the book's for you. If you hear the word needy and you feel some kind of way, then you know that there's something for you there. And, you know, certainly that's the case for me, which is why I chose it. Um, but that has been really fun to realize. You're spot on because I can't think of a person who didn't respond in this kind of orbit of like kind of stepping back and then are like, people talk about that or can I talk about that or... I don't want, I mean, I don't want to be seen as needy, but I have needs. Oh my gosh, Rebecca, stop. You know, so there's some kind of combination of that. So I am really excited to be able to share this conversation with so many today. And I, I want to start off just by getting some definitions uh, out there. And I'd like for you to talk about how you define needy and how you see a difference between needs and needy. 
if at all? Yeah. You know, I think at this point, I'm going full tilt neutrality with the term needy. And that's a reclamation. Absolutely. Because this is a polarizing term and we all can have that, you know, it's evocative. We think of that hungry ghost, that person, typically a woman from pop culture who is whiny and never satisfied. And it's like a pot boiling over all the time and talking about her feelings and, you know, ruining everyone's day with her emotional baggage. And we don't want to be that, right? We're well conditioned not to want to be that. And it is, you know, it happens so seamlessly that we go from that image to the presence of feelings, the presence of needs is what makes you a needy person. And that's bad, right? So we can't do that either. And when I was writing this book, I was thinking about how that neediness is born out of this desire to be seen and to be known and to be prioritized and to feel as though you matter in your relationships. And there's nothing wrong with that. I want that for all of us. And that far more often neediness as we have come to know and define it is what happens when we suppress our needs and pretend that we don't have them. And then we do become, we create this inevitable situation where we are that pot boiling over because we're pretending, we're pretending, we're pretending until we can't pretend anymore. And then, you know, here's this big eruption, this thing that we don't want to be. And now we're either villainized in our relationships or more likely we're villainizing ourselves for the very presence of that thing that we've been trying to suppress. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be known. There's nothing wrong with wanting to matter. There's nothing wrong with having conditions for what you need in your relationships in order to exist, in order to thrive. And that's how I think of needs. Needs are those conditions. It is the what. It is what you require in order to exist and thrive in your relationships. And What I find is that a huge hindrance for us in asking for what we need is even knowing what we're allowed to need to begin with. And so, you know, I remember people used to ask me, well, what do you need? And I didn't even know what was on the table. Like, what am I allowed to ask for? I have no model for that. I have no vocabulary for that. And so I sought to write a book of words for you to help you, um, learn how to explore. Okay. So, you know, we have these collective needs for safety or for belonging, for love, for contribution, for celebration. How do I experience that? How do I personally ache for that? And I often think about how, you know, if the need is the what, you know, we talk about needs and wants, right? The need is the what and the want is the how. And they really work together. If you are hoping for or wanting a more satisfying life. We got to have to consider both needs and wants. I often find people want to put these into a hierarchy. I urge you not to think about them side by side. And you know that the need is the what that provides the container. I need to eat breakfast. I need to feel loved. 
And that want is what you're, what specifically you're hungry for or how exactly you feel loved or you desire to feel loved, right? You know, I need to feel loved. What I want most is like a tiny handwritten note or an unexpected text message. Or for me, it's always words. Um, you know, those few extra words. I took out the trash because I love you, right? That's what makes me feel loved. And that it's not just having that need met just kind of in this root, like check the box kind of way, but being known specifically. And I think we can offer that kind of care and consideration to ourselves. And we, the more we practice it, the more that we're able to articulate how others can meet our needs in those specific ways too. So let me, let me jump in here. You said a few things like having our needs is neutral for when I, and I connect the dots to some training I just did with the right use of power organization and kind of has me thinking a little bit how they're talking about power is just, it's kind of our, what we're born with it. We have it. It's not, you know, that's another word that's been particularly polarizing for women. So connecting some dots there and and agreeing with so much of you said and I'm feeling parts of me still go man remember those days when we thought it was so badass to not have any needs because I know I got it I'm fine I'm good I don't need anything and that was like a like a badge of honor mm-hmm. and we were almost praised for it like oh yeah like the the machine like there's still echoes of that in me as I'm Hearing you talk, I'm noticing because I don't agree with it at all, but noticing how deep those beliefs and actually those are burdens that it is a good thing to deny my basic needs as a human being. And so this is this has gotten really warped. But I, I want to follow up and make sure I, I didn't miss this. Do you see a difference between needs and needy, or are they one and the same to you? To me, being a needy person means a person who is in fluid conversation with their needs, right? I think that we can reclaim that word um, much like, you know, (laughs) you're a big feeler. I'm like, yes, I am a person who is very in touch with my feelings in that kind of way. It's like, what is that supposed to mean? It means I have needs. Yes. Yes, I do. And so do you, right? Having needs is a fact and not a flaw. We all have them, whether or not we're willing to interface with them. And sometimes, you know, not, not quote unquote, not having needs means that your needs are being met by and large, either by circumstance or privilege. You know, if you don't really feel like you're needing anything, that is sometimes the case, right? My needs are already being met. And so, I don't have that feeling of there's something that I need that I don't have that I have to articulate. The the word needy is like really difficult for me to still sit with, even though I am agreeing with you 100%. I loved your book. I wanted you here on the show. And I'm like still sitting with parts of me like, no, 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 don't be needy. So, okay. So walk me through the barriers that we, especially those of us who identify as female or hold some other marginalized identities. What are the barriers that we face in identifying, expressing, and caring for our needs? I think they are many. You are not alone in feeling that way about the word needy. I feel that way too. And it's such a practice to learn how to be in relationship with my needs in a different way. I grew up 
in such a time that the major romantic comedies of that time were, you know, the women who were successful, meaning that they got the guy, <laughs> was were women who were cool and chill. And they liked to, they just went with the flow and they didn't have too many feelings. And that, just that is enough. Just that. You know, I don't even, I'm, married to my part. I've like haven't dated a dude in a very long time. It is still a present thought in my mind. Um so just that, just the way that needs are depicted in the media. And there is this hysterical woman. I mean, I think this impacts people of all genders who are socialized as girls. That idea of having needs, having feelings, expressing those things that there's this like untethered hysteria to it that must be avoided at all costs. It does has no place in the workplace, no place in a successful relationship, no place in, you know, public at all. I think about this with my child. I have two children, they're three and six, and they have temper tantrums wherever they are. But God forbid they're having a temper tantrum in the grocery store that is, you know, or, oh, oh God, a restaurant right? Where fabulous people are eating their food and they don't want to see a toddler who's upset because she asked you to cut her bread and then you cut it the wrong way. And we get these messages that are essentially saying your humanity is not welcome here. It's inconvenient. I don't want to deal with it. And also, you know, we suffer the cost of that. And so I think that there is this reckoning that we encounter where we have to choose how we want to live. What is true is that people love it when I do more than one human can possibly do in a day. What is true is people love it when I say yes. They love it when I overachieve. They love it when I anticipate their every need. All of those things are absolutely factually true. I get praised for them up and down. But what's the cost? What's the cost of pretending that I'm perfect? What's the cost of only feeling like I belong in my relationships because I'm good at doing things for other people? You know, a couple of years ago, I shattered my ankle and I had an 18 month old child and my partner and I work for ourselves from home and Overnight, I mean, in a moment, I went from doing many, 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 many things all day to spending the next six months non-weight bearing, basically in bed, not able to do, not able to pick my kid up, not able to help with anything. Six months? Six months. Six months with an 18-month-old. Yes. Just want to make sure that was all yeah. really clear. No weight bearing activity no. for six months within no. 18 months. Okay. Just- I eventually did kind of get like a scooter and she would like scoot with me on my scooter. But I mean, I couldn't do anything real. You know, I couldn't really change her diaper. I couldn't pick her up out of her crib. I couldn't do any of those things. And my world imploded in so many ways during that time, because even though I had done this work for so long, really not being able to contribute was so confronting because I didn't understand what my own value was as a wife and a mother and a human if I wasn't able to do all of the things that I was doing. Okay, just pause for a moment there, because that's big. 
if we are not contributing and we're not doing, we're faced we're faced with a reckoning of our value and our worth and our identity. How did you move through that? It was really dark for a while. And I, you know, at the time, I think I couldn't quite realize how dark it was um, because it was dark in so many ways. You know, it was a brutal injury. I'm really lucky to be able to walk. Um, I had to have surgery. You know, I was on all of these opioids that I had to wean myself off of. And, you know, even being a mental health practitioner and knowing so many things about all of the steps of this process, it was powerful to realize how just how our understanding of ourselves are is formed and how when those vital components are taken away, which is why when I'm talking about prioritizing and centering your needs, I am doing so lovingly and gently because I fully understand that this destabilizes the status quo of your life in so many ways. But also, you're not what you do. And you're not what you offer others. And you're not, you know, your perfect productivity and your best days and your glory moments. You are that full spectrum of your experience. And until we can really allow ourselves to take that in, we're always going to be chasing more. We're always going to be putting our needs, you know, on the back burner until we get to wherever it is that we think that we're going. And then we're going to find somewhere else to go and again and again and again. And we're always going to be an afterthought in our own lives. And this is challenging because as I said, it is true. There are people in your life who won't love this change in you. And also, I do believe that with time, you will love it because you're going to realize who you are and what you want and what you like and what feels good. And more importantly, that chasing that feeling of, I just want to matter to somebody that when we slow down and we start to matter to ourselves, the whole world opens up in this huge way. There it is. Because being back to the restaurant example, you shared (laughs) being at a restaurant with your young kids um, who are being PhDs in their ages, (laughs) fabulously and inconveniencing others and their expectations, their needs for a peaceful dinner. And I've started thinking about after reading your book, how often I and others can get repulsed and want to reject others needs, though, too, there is the kind of there is some social proof that having needs or being needy will just people you'll feel rejected. Mm-hmm. And so I just was thinking about that. I'm, I'm sure we could psychoanalyze the heck out of that. Um, and I think there's some important things to name around that, too. So it's not just we reject our own needs often because we've been taught that that is not okay. And we're uncomfortable with others' needs at the heart of it because we're not owning ours, especially those who are conditioned as women. Yeah, you know, I think that the other thing we have to name is how deep this runs and how we carry these stories about what it means to have needs back to the very beginning of our lives. And however our needs were treated or, you know, not validated or not, um, we carry that with us. And I find that, 
you know, we go in, we go in two directions. One is the needy direction, the classically needy direction. And the other is like needs. I don't know them. I don't want to talk about them. I don't want you to have them. I certainly don't want to have them. I don't want anybody to bring them up. And, you know, I think about this um, in relationships because I have a, a pretty classically anxious attachment style and I'm, I'm needy relationally, right? And I always have this tendency, you know, as my partner certainly is of, of the opposite spectrum, right? And we polarize each other in that way. And there's some great healing to be done in that, but there's also a lot of room for miscommunication and misunderstanding because I'm like, needs are here. And my partner is often wondering like, so we're allowed to have needs. That's like a thing. You think that's a thing. I'm not so sure. And that however, wherever it is that we are, we come by that honestly, right? We come by that through experiences and how painful it is to be a person of any age who doesn't feel as though somebody, you know, that, that your needs are validated, that you're allowed to have needs, that, you know, it is, um, an okay experience in relationships. I find that the people in my life who say to me things like, thank you for asking for what you need. So powerful. This is so, so powerful. And, you know, that's something I try to ask my kid or say to my kids when they ask me for what they need, whether or not I'm going to give them what they need <laughs> is another thing completely, right? Because that's the thing. Thank you so much for asking for what you need. I don't have the bandwidth for that right now. And that's okay, but we can validate the presence of a need without having the capacity to meet that need. And I think the more that we're able to have this these conversational skills around needs, the better mm-hmm. equipped we are to have conversations that, I don't know, don't make us feel invalidated in that kind of way. And not everyone's up for that. I mean, I think the most <laughs> oh, no. important thing to take home around conversing about your needs is that how somebody responds to you and your needs is more often about them and what they're allowing themselves to ask than you. Whether or not somebody has the capacity for what you need is not a referendum on your worth or on what you need. And third of all, that this piece of really understanding I am responsible for my needs. And where am I outsourcing that and making it somebody else's problem because I don't want to or know how to deal with it myself. And this happens a lot in mind reading. I mean, talk about the rom-com example. This is what I learned. When you're really good, which usually means you're really hot, you will get your needs met because people just will be falling over themselves to give you what you need without you having to ask for it. So if you have to ask, it's already bad. You're already, you know, that's already, you should be embarrassed already. And that's a huge obstacle to overcome in relationships and how much misunderstanding happens because I think if I need something and I'm worth having that need, you are going to just know or give it to me without me having to ask. And if you don't, what's wrong with me and what's wrong with my need and how much mismanagement and miscommunication is happening in these silent conversations? Okay, you are nailing this because I am having flashbacks, not like 
debilitating ones, but memories is probably a better word of like conversations and being told, Rebecca, you just need so much, you know? And so then I internalized, don't be too much. And then there was the, the vice grip of other family members where I'm like, what do you want? What do you need? And they wouldn't tell me. And they were mad that I didn't just know. Mm-hmm. And so it was like this mind F. And so in our family, it's very, very similar to yours. What what do you need? I don't know if I can get it, give it to you, but whatever you want is, I, I want to hear it. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes my kids will get silly, like I want to go to the World Series and sit in the dugout or something. I'm like, awesome, can't do it, but man, let's <laughs> let's dream on. But sometimes it's like I don't want to go um, play with this person, or you know, I don't want to go with you all on the the road trip. I'd rather you know stay home and read and. Like we get to talk about that and validate that because in our house, the we you know the F word is a bad word, but it's not the one you're thinking of. It's it's saying I'm fine, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, oh no, you did it. And the kids get all irritated. I'm like, you just said a bad word, and they're like, okay, mom, seriously, you're being lame. <laughs> but it's like, what's going on? And so I really appreciate that. And I and I'm just kind of connecting some dots on how much my experience with that vice grip of being told my needs were too much for others and I was supposed to mind read for everybody and not, you know, that was insulting if they had to tell me that was, they were, I wasn't really loving them well if I didn't just know. Mm-hmm. Um, dang. Yeah. That, and I'm, and I obviously see that play out with uh, all that I've worked with over the last two decades. So for you, what are some crucial practices you use to nurture both identifying and honoring your needs? So the number one well, I guess I shouldn't say. The number one practice that I use is giving myself time and space to check in with how I am feeling um, somewhere other than in that exact moment, right? I have a very hard time connecting with myself in the presence of other people still after so much practice. So this might look like me getting up and going to the bathroom And just having that space to say, what do I think? How do I feel? Or maybe somebody asks me to do something and I might say, I don't know, I have to check my calendar, right? That's code for like, I need two minutes to myself to even think about whether or not that's something I want to do. So just having that space and having those tools to be in conversation with myself about, well, you know, how do I feel about that? If I make that commitment, you know, what will I need in order to make good on it? Am I going to, knowing I only have a certain amount of capacity, if I say yes to that, I'm going to have to say no to something else. Am I willing to do that, right? To, to have that conversation. And so I think, you know, having actual physical space can be really useful. And this might look like saying, Hey, I need a break from this conversation. Um, let's circle back in half an hour or whatever the case may be. But the other thing that has been really useful is that I no longer have uh, unspoken conversations about needs. And this is a boundary with myself and a boundary with the people in my life. And so a couple of years ago, I, I had been doing this in my work for a while where I would say when I would run a retreat or something, I would say, you know, I'm here. It, it, I'm absolutely game to help you get whatever it is that you need. Like I love to do that. That's so pleasurable for me. What I'm not going to do, and it's not pleasurable for me, is to try and anticipate or guess what you need. So your job is to ask. My job is to you know decide whether or not I can make that happen. 
Um, or maybe we compromise, whatever, we take it from there. And I was doing that in my work when all of a sudden I kind of thought, like, I want to do this like with my spouse. <laughs> I want to do this all over the place. And so, you know, I had conversations with the people who are closest to me to say, look, I know this is a sea change for our relationship, but I am no longer going to be reading your mind. If you want something from me or you need something from me, you have to tell me what it is out loud and explicitly. I'm not going to, um, you know, any of the kind of things that I was doing before. I'm not going to engage in that anymore. And it was important for me to say to them, you know, I, I love you and I have such a vested interest in you getting what you need, but I'm not, I just don't think that it's working for me to assume that I know, and I, I certainly don't want you to assume that you know what I need, right? Let's just talk about it. Not in a heavy handed way, but, you know, in an oft occurring kind of way. And what's tricky about this, the self boundary part is that is that data still available for me? Yeah, it is 24 seven. I'm just getting all those cute little messages, like reading the room. You know, often we say, well, read the rooms. Like I am always reading the room. And so this has been a practice with myself where, you know, I might notice that my partner has something going on, but that they're allowed to have their own private experience without sharing it with me or without me you know, inviting myself into their process prematurely. And what does that look like for me to just notice and wait? And it's it's really uncomfortable. I mean, phenomenally uncomfortable. Oh, exquisitely uncomfortable to see someone you love uncomfortable and you have to sit with their uncomfort on discomfort yeah. that brings up discomfort within me. Yeah, my husband's going to listen to this and he's going to totally be like, see, yeah. just let let me have my moment. Well, and Don't try and fix me. It's hard. <laughs> and I, I hate it. But also, I will say that, you know, when I think about it, when I like expand out from it, you know, that everybody needing to be okay in order for me to be okay is an unfair expectation. I think unfair is almost too mild of a word. Yeah. It's a ridiculous yeah. one. So, you know, being able to have that freedom to not be managed in all of the moments, right? And uh -huh. what happens in a relationship when both of us are relieved of the impossible task of reading the other person's mind and having that mean love. Oh my gosh. Right? Leading is hard and leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small and denying your fundamental needs. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights, but it is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown 
and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than you were taught. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. I want to shift a little bit, but continue on this theme around discomfort. If you can take me back to a time when you saw the connection between your capacity for discomfort and setting boundaries to care for your needs. And I'm just curious how this experience helped you build more trust. Yeah. You know, I'm sure I'm not alone in reading discomfort as meaning you're doing something wrong and you should stop what you're doing and like go, you know, think about Monopoly, like go back to start and um, read more or listen to podcasts or hire somebody or go to therapy, figure it out because we're not supposed to feel uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable all the time <laughs> now in, in this version of my life. And it's not great. I mean, I can't, I can't say, oh, I, you know, now discomfort and I are best friends. But I think no longer reading the presence of my discomfort as there's something wrong and understanding, hey, discomfort accompanies so many things. You know, this process of putting my book Needy out into the world was hands down the most uncomfortable process of my life. And I did it on purpose, right? I did it intentionally. It was worth the discomfort. And, you know, showing up as who I really am in my relationship, asking for what I need, even when I know that the other person is super tapped out or frankly doesn't want to give me what I need. And yet I still need it, right? Being present for those conversations, having my own back and being at my own side and learning to expect that discomfort will arise whenever you are doing something meaningful or vulnerable and that instead of having that be the stop sign of like, oh no, the discomfort's here, something is amiss, um, you know, maybe I'm not ready. That was a really, that was really hard for me because the discomfort would show up and I would think I'm not ready. I didn't do what I needed to do. So I have to rethink the whole operation, how much time I spent in spinning in that, um, rethinking and coming back, getting uncomfortable again, rethinking, getting back. And that now instead I get curious about the, the discomfort and ask myself what I need. Like when I'm uncomfortable, what is supportive for me? Tending to the discomfort instead of, you know, reacting to it in such a way that you're backing away constantly helps you to move through it and helps you to not be afraid of it anymore. I think for me, spending so much time in discomfort these days you know, I have a, a a short menu of things that I can kind of run through in my, in my mind and say, 
you know, here this, first of all, expecting and anticipating that discomfort will arise is so key for me because it, it reframes that, oh no, discomfort's here. It's like, yeah, discomfort's here, of course. That makes, that tracks up and down. Um, and then thinking, okay, well, you know, what can I do to make the rest of my day more comfortable? What can I do to support myself in this moment so that I can just be here in this discomfort without making it mean something about me, about what I'm trying to do or react to it in any way? You know, how can I just be with this and know Mm. that eventually it will fade and it will change and, you know, then it'll come back again, ultimately. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that takes a lot of trust. And for me, I always say discomfort is data, not your identity. And that data, you know, you're helping me fill it in more. Like the data is what are what are you needing? What are your needs? And how do you, what do you need to, you know, what does your system need for you to care for it? And to befriend that, um, be in relationship with that versus trying to exile it is a game changer. And you wrote in your book, Needy, how to advocate for your needs and claim your sovereignty. The following words, you said, tending to yourself is an act of rebuilding trust. And building self-trust is generated through a simple principle, follow through. I love that. I love that. And I just think it, it's not the way that you frame it. It's very different than we hear in a lot of personal or professional development spaces, you know, like in a, it's like a power over move. Mm-hmm. This is really different. And I would love for you to talk about the stakes for us. What are the stakes for us to follow through on caring for our needs? Yeah, so I want to name that we may have a gut reaction to fall, that follow through piece. It's a little bit like that Nike just do it thing. And when I talk about it in the book, what I mean by follow through is don't abandon yourself in the process. Because whether or not you do the thing, I don't really care. I mean, yeah, sure. (laughs) Make good on your promises to yourself. That is a good rule of thumb by and large. Prioritize your promises to yourself over other things that you're promising to other people. You know, that is what keeps you in good working order. But the missing piece for me, because I was a, was and am in many ways, a type A perfectionist control freak kind of person. And I had this all or nothing approach where if I was going to take care of myself, that meant I had to do it perfectly. I had to honor every commitment. I used to have this cute joke that was like, you know, when I promise something, I'll be there, put it on my tombstone, meaning etch it into me because that is how deeply I am promising this to you. And the shadow side of that was at all costs, I will, you know, show up and produce and do the thing at all costs. And I don't subscribe to that in the same way anymore. I do endeavor to commit to less so that I can keep my commitments. Keeping my commitments is really important to me. But what this looks like in practice is show up to the conversation. You know, if I say I want to start moving my body. And I make every effort to reclaim that decision from diet culture and the, you know, workout abuse of my youth. And I do my due diligence to be really kind to myself about the commitment that I'm making and really generous. But then I notice, like I said, I wanted it, but I'm not showing up for it at all. 
that is an opportunity to have a conversation with myself and to say quite literally just what's up, right? Not to beat myself up and say, see, I knew it. You missed two days. You're never going to do it again. You know, all of these things about me as a human being, but instead that follow through, follow through with yourself. Don't just ghost yourself in the process. Follow through and say, hey, you made a commitment that you're not showing up for. Does the commitment need to change? Do you need some support, tangible support? And what I mean by follow through is really continue to show up to the conversation. Okay, self, if not this, then what? You need support. What can I offer you? You have feelings? Fine. Great. You know, you are allowed to have your own experience. It doesn't have to be perfect in order to be good or in order to be supportive. And how can I stay present in my relationship with myself so that I, I can hold the thread of whatever it is that, that commitment that I made and be in intentional communication with myself about it? Hmm. For me, it used to be so painful to break my promises or see myself in such a way that I would ghost on myself because I couldn't confront it. You know, if I can't be perfect, which I I can't, none of us can, then, you know, I'm horrible. I'm nothing, right? That all or nothing thinking. Um, And just how important it is to be by our own side during the process and how much can be worked out, you know showing up for ourselves the way that we want to be shown up for with that curiosity and that camaraderie and that like, just Mm -hmm. checking in genuinely. You know, what's interesting is how I read that landed in a way that I think people build my trust when they follow through for with me, like whether it's their commitments, whether it's even remembering something that's important to me, you know, you know, honoring something that's important to me. And then I went, dang, again, we are the first to abandon ourselves, not other people. We're the ones that abandon our boundaries, abandon our needs. And so that follow through kind of landed with me in that way. Mm -hmm. So I've just been kind of like thinking. And so if there is something that I've committed to myself and it's not happening, sometimes even what I've committed to may not really be meeting my needs, but maybe my should needs. And so I really, I really appreciate um digging into that. And I want to move to another gem. There's so many gems in your books. I had to choose. I would love to hear more how you differentiate self-responsibility and hyper-individualism and how did that change how you cared for your own needs? This is a tricky, this is a sticky wicket Um, because it can be challenging to thread the needle between we are responsible for ourselves and our needs. And also we are human and we're a hypersocial species and we need one another. We co-regulate with one another. And how do I navigate where I end and the rest of the world begins and who is responsible for what? And we live in a culture here in the States that praises hyper-individualism. And 
that is dangerous in and of itself because it lets us know, you know, just like it's great to not be needy, it's great to be this, these autonomous units and how lonely we all are for genuine and authentic experiences of ourselves and of one another, but also how scary and risky that is to be authentic when there's so much emphasis placed on being these little robots that are doing all the right things and producing at all costs. And so I think for me, the way that I think about this and, you know, I have a chapter in the book about sovereignty. Um, I feel I'm of multiple minds about the word sovereignty, but I included it because the concept is so important for people who need this book, this idea of I am my own. My life is for me to live it. Because I don't know about you, but I grew up with this belief that my life was for me to be of service, that I did not even matter in the landscape of my own life. That my life was just this vessel to better myself, to do for, to be pleasing for others. And to be successful in this very contrived kind of formulaic way. And that was like, that was like, that was the gig. That's, you know, I was nowhere in it. And so when I think about, you know, being responsible for myself, what I mean is it's my job to walk myself through the front door. It's my job to be in relationship with myself in such a way that I know what I need. And I'm learning how to communicate that with other people. Do I meet all of those needs by myself? I do not. We, we are in relationships with people. We have, you know, mental health care professionals of all sorts. We're meeting these needs in a multitude of ways. Also, it is an unfair expectation to expect that one person in your life to meet all of your needs. I'll squeak that in here. Yeah. Um, total setup. So, <laughs> you know, it takes a, it takes a village of people to meet your needs. There are different things that different needs that I get met with my sister, with my partner, with my dog, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's my job to be the facilitator of that, to be the person who's in touch with myself and see, well, how am I doing? What do I need? What needs are, what's going well? What's not going as well? What pivots need to be made, if any, and to communicate that as honestly as I can. But that doesn't mean I'm responsible. I think this is the line, right? Don't ask for anything, um, take care of all of your needs on your own in the shadow corners of your life. That's where we tip the line into that hyper individualism where I am responsible for everything. I cannot let anyone see me or know me. Right. Or even acknowledge the impact of the cultural burdens that yeah. we're breathing in day in and day out that impact quote unquote mindset struggles or mm-hmm. imposter experience struggles or whatever that's been labeled. That, you know, and so I, I, to me, I, how I really, what I really appreciate about self-responsibility is I am responsible for my actions. I'm responsible for caring for, identifying and speaking and getting my needs met. Doesn't mean solely without in community, but to speak up for that. And I'm accountable mm-hmm. for that process. Hyper-individualism, it almost, there's no accountability with that. It's, oh, you're struggling. Well, go deal with that and let me know when you're fixed. You know, and, you know, it's it's like, that's not my thing. It's your thing. And then that's a sense of, oh, I did it on my own and you should too. That has been making us so 
six. So I, and you really go deeper into this in the book. So if you're listening to this, please grab your copy. And I really liked how you unpacked this. And and before I move off this, I would love for you to share what are some common beliefs or internal narratives that you hold or have held that fuel kind of you staying stuck with hyper-individualism over moving to self-responsibility? You know, I used to be the kind of person who saw myself as this like ever flowing fountain. I mean, the trick is you can borrow against yourself for a period of time. This is seductive. So the fact that we can borrow against ourselves for a period of time makes us believe that we can do that all the time, if only we try harder. And I was so susceptible to those, you know, toxic productivity culture. And really, for me, this was rooted in diet culture. It was like, you will, you should be better than you are. Who you are is not acceptable. You are a project. You are a work in progress. Kind of come back to me and your life will begin. I really, I mean, when I was a teenager, when I was in my early 20s, I was holding my breath trying to diet, trying to change my body so that my life would begin all the while living, but not, you know, not really living. And, you know, I think that this is the piece, this is where it gets so tricky is we say, okay, well, you know, I'll get to myself, first of all, that I need a whole blank calendar or these huge spaces to take care of myself or $20,000 in my bank account or, you know, anything like that. It's like, the when I've earned it, I'll take care of myself, right? It's like, well, when I have earned my own attention at the time of retirement, which is the ultimate setup, right. I'll, I'll have a space in my own life. Um, and yet so many of us are not retiring. I mean, it, the whole thing is just ridiculous. But, you know, this piece of putting your your needs and your care on the other side of this thing which becomes this pattern of always having a thing to put your needs on the other side of because it's confronting and it's messy. And, you know, we think we need all of our time and our energy and our attention to be able to make a dent or for have our efforts to be worth it. And when we get stuck in that pattern, we are always going to be placing something between us and the tending that we ache for. And in order to have the capacity to be here, Now, part of what is messy has to be me taking care of myself. It's like it's all already overwhelming, inconvenient, out of control. And my own resilience in the face of everything on my plate is created out of these small moments when I can reclaim space in my life or take care of myself over the course of the day. And Learning how to meet yourself in that messy middle, I think, is just such a essential and valuable skill for us as human beings on the planet right now. And the more that we can do that and the more that we can push back on our own perfectionism around what it's supposed to look like, the better equipped that we can be. And you know, when you are well cared for, by and large, you do have that extra capacity for when the shit hits the fan, or somebody gets sick, or you need something, or, you know, you have to kind of switch gears in that way. But if we're constantly at that state, we're burnt out or rapidly getting to burn out. Um, And then, 
you know, you're the vessel for your own energy. If you have nothing left, if you're not in good working order, you don't have anything to offer anyone in your life. I appreciate all of that. And I appreciate the connection to, of hyper-individualism with diet culture and how insidious it is in the name of health and in the name of bettering, your, bettering yourself or and how the whole, like, let's delay your rewards and delay your needs so that you do it, it the whole thing and having us be at war with ourselves, it moves us farther away from trusting ourselves. And so I really appreciate everything you said. As we wrap up, I'm curious for you, what is your definition of success now that you've shifted your views and your relationship with and to your needs? Yeah, I think, you know, these days, um, I see my felt experience of my life as one of the um, ways that I receive abundance, right? So, you know, I work for myself. Um, part of how I organize my life is that I have a good understanding of what my needs are, financial and otherwise. I work hard to meet those needs in a way that feels as good and as stress-free as possible. Not always possible, but that's what I strive for. And I and and I let there be space and that feels successful, right? Instead of, you know, always trying to make more, always trying to reach this, always trying to do that. It's like really being in relationship with what do I need for my life, you know, to feed my kids and have a roof over my head and and then the rest of it is to have space to live my life, right? That it's not always you know, I, I was talking to somebody recently and they were like, oh, so you only work, you know, now I work maybe 30 hours a week. You only work 30 hours a week. Imagine how much money you could make if you worked 50 hours a week. And I was like, but I don't <laughs> want to work 50 hours a week. That's by design because I see being able to, you know, my kids are about to come home in a couple of minutes and I'm going to hang out with them this afternoon and I'm going to cook dinner and I'm going to put them to bed and I'm not going to work again until tomorrow morning. And yeah, my my to-do list is packed. There's so many things I could do. But part of what success means to me is that I'm able to have these good boundaries around how I want to live, which is like the real thing. I love that because you've got such clarity on your enough in all areas. And then that's based on and inspired by your needs. I love it. I love it. And way to kind of just name that. All right. So just everyone listening, consider this conversation and a moose bouche to so much more goodness in Mara's book, Needy. Mara, are you ready for some quick fire questions before yes. we end this conversation? Okay. What are you reading right now? I am reading Say It Out Loud by Vasavi Kumar, which I highly recommend. It doesn't come out until May 16th. I got an early copy because I had Vasavi on my podcast, but it's great. Okay. Adding that to the list. What song are you playing on repeat? I'm playing Remind Me by Emily King. Okay. What is the best TV show or movie you have seen recently? Shrinking. Have you seen oh my Shrinking? Blown. My, I love it. And I cringe and love it oh. all rolled up together. Yeah. So good. Yes, I'm, I'll be debriefing that on the podcast at the end of yes. the year, for sure. What is your mantra right now? It is safe to be who and how I am. Dang. It is safe to be who and how I am. 
What is an unpopular opinion that you hold? You don't have to love or like yourself to take care of yourself. Dude, you're just not letting up here. (laughs) Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? At this moment, my emotional support TV show is, again and again, Madam Secretary. And Elizabeth and Henry McCord are my TV role models for leadership. And I just soak it up. Whenever I need it, I soak it up. Mara, where can people find you if they want to connect with you and your work? Come hang out with me at maraglatzel.com. You can find the book there. You can find all of the ways that I work with people. You can also find a really fun quiz for what you need right now. I have resources that will meet you right where you are in this moment. And hang out with me on Instagram at maraglatzel. Wonderful. Mara, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for putting this book out to the world. And just thank you for who you are. This has been a delight. Thanks for having me. This was so fun. I love talking to you. When we deny our needs and the needs of others, we deny their humanity, we deny our dignity, and we deny our agency. I feel like we end up constantly in this needing bind where we shame ourselves for having needs and then get mad when others don't meet our needs. It's a tough one, right? And when we deny the needs of ourselves and others, we end up becoming complicit in a system that does not care about our needs, but deeply cares about our productivity. Mara flips the script on needs and needy. She reminds us that needs are just like breathing and reflects our humanity, something that should be honored and prioritized instead of vilified and shamed. Now, I see folks figuratively and literally roll their eyes at those who have their own needs. The judgment and disgust on being seen as needy still runs deep. Yet, when we push back on the shaming of needs and honor our needs and those of others with respect and dignity, it sure rocks the boat on how things have been done for so long and what we've been taught about what it means to adult and lead well. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. Now, if this episode was meaningful to you and positively impacted you, I'd be honored if you would leave a review and a rating and share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. This sure helps us get this incredible show out to more people and it means the world to me. Thank you so much. And you can find this episode, show notes, ways to sign up for our free weekly Unburdened Leader email and find ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 